Hey, listeners. Because of the events unfolding in Charlottesville and the alt-right rallies showing up across the country, we decided to re-release a previous episode that we did on the alt-right. We found it particularly informative, and we hope that you do too. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we dive into a topic of national or international significance and discuss the particular impact on women and girls and how they are able to overcome or transcend. The alternative right, or known shorthand as the alt-right, is a general umbrella term for a set of right-wing ideologies, groups, and individuals whose central belief is that white people, and most particularly white men, are under attack in our society by a system of multiculturalism, and in their thinking, political correctness gone out of control. It bears a lot of resemblance to the Nazi party of the 1930s. For a little background, the movement was started by Richard Spencer when he coined the term alternative right in 2008. Happens to be the same year that Barack Obama was elected president. Spencer heads the white nationalist think tank known as the National Policy Institute. The alt-right is organized around a loose set of ideals that are mainly focused on promoting the interests of white identity. Spencer describes the U.S. as being hyper-racialized. The alt-right is connected with the European identitarianism movement, which espouses racial and cultural homogeneity and the ultimate goal of individual white nation-states. The alt-right is not a monolithic group. It's not one single organization with one mutually agreed-upon mission statement. They see themselves as more of a big tent movement. An example of this is their view of Jews. There are some alt-right or alt-right affiliated groups who are led by Jews while others blame Jews for contributing to the destruction of white culture. Richard Spencer is anti-Semitic and has raised questions about whether there was a Jewish Holocaust in World War II, for example. The hallmark of the alt-right has been social media and has been instrumental in its rise. Alt-right has had a significant presence on Reddit, 4chan, and Twitter, all hiding behind anonymous accounts. They have organized messaging behind hashtags such as hashtag white genocide, hashtag I salute white people. Donald Trump has been a hero to the alt-right. They have put significant effort into associating their hashtags and memes with Trump who, like alt-right, rails against political correctness. Trump, whether purposefully or not, 
made space in the right wing to allow the alt-right to grow. The election of Trump to the presidency has marked a new era for the alt-right, allowing new opportunities, much more media attention, and moved a lot of its membership out of the shadows and some into the White House. How do women factor into alt-right? Well, not in much esteem, it seems. Rallies rattle on about the alpha male and suggest women belong at home in the kitchen. Alt-right affiliated groups are endeavoring to attract more women members, but as you might imagine, this is proving a little difficult. Leaders like Spencer defend the movement, saying that women are meek and don't like conflict or anything dangerous, so they hold the beliefs, but they won't share them openly or attend events in case there's violence. It's too scary for us. The foundation of alt-right thinking is that white men have been displaced and emasculated by women and minorities and are not equal to white men. When the audio tape of Trump discussing what was essentially sexual assault for an Access Hollywood show was made public, he solidified his position with alt-right. Spencer, in particular, came to Trump's defense, saying that it was ridiculous and puritanical to call Trump's behavior sexual assault, adding, quote, At some part of every woman's soul, they want to be taken by a strong man. The alt-right movement has had significant success attracting social misfits who hear the message that if they are rejected by women, then it is not their fault, but it is the fault of that particular woman as well as the fault of our societal power structures which are systematically undermining the overall success of white men. They are told that they are not misfits but instead they are the victims of an emasculating power struggle with women and minorities, which contributes to a bitter resentment towards both. Coming up next, my discussion with Dr. Paul Johnson, who is an assistant professor in the communication department at University of Pittsburgh. Welcome to Women Transcend Paul. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you today about this topic, but I, I have to be honest with you, I'm I'm a little bit I, I have a little bit of apprehension about learning this information. I think it is so important for us uh, to be discussing this, but at the same time I also find it horrifying. So I'd like to talk with you today about the alt-right and the, you know, the rising, how would you say it, the alt-right neo-Nazi or it's kind of an umbrella term at this point, isn't it? It is uh, actually. And, and there's a lot of debate about how much it exists and some folks claim it willingly. Other folks are sort of uh, reticent. Okay. 
Can you tell me how organized this movement is, or is it more of like just a group of people with shared beliefs? Well, you know, it's not, certainly we're not talking about something where there are, you know, enough sort of avowed members that you could refer to many card carrying members of the alt-right. Uh, it's sort of like a network in which people, right, sort of perform or demonstrate their membership by attaching themselves to certain kinds of communities, uh, becoming invested and, and repeating certain kinds of discourses, and then sort of belonging to those communities, which have been then labeled the alt-right by folks in the media, political commentators, academics, uh, and, and what have you. There are some folks like Richard Spencer, right, who admit readily to being a member of the alt-right and are sort of proud about it. And then there are lots of other people who, you know, are less, uh, less willing to admit their membership. They would take that as an opportunity to deny the existence of the alt-right as a formation uh, or as a thing that exists, in, in much the same way that a lot of economists right, deny that there's such a thing as neoliberalism. Okay, so what is the relationship between alt-right and neo-Nazis, or is there a difference? Um, there, there's a difference in one sense, and there's not a difference in another sense. If one wants to work with a kind of theory of white supremacy, as a theory or a prism that's used for explaining things that are happening in American society and politics, we're talking about a, a difference in degree rather than a difference in kind between, say, neo-Nazis and members of the alt-right. Uh, neo-Nazis don't exactly have the same kinds of code words or sense of shame about their association with you know, white power or white nationalism, as opposed to some some members of the alt-right who do. Now, there are folks who sort of work as kind of bridges, right? So Richard Spencer's an example, uh -huh. right? His focus quite directly on, you know, the ideas of white supremacy and white power. Uh, but there are all sorts of members of online communities who recirculate racist jokes, um, offensive content, complain about the sensitivity of PC culture, and that's that kind of response to uh, online content or political controversies, you know, that are trying to raise awareness and consciousness about the existence of racism. They, they're, the discourse that they use, their attitudes towards the world, you know, reflect an unwillingness to understand white supremacy, uh, you know, sexism, that, you know, are part of our society. Uh-huh. So the alt-right use more code to sort of communicate their beliefs, whereas neo-Nazis are a little bit more just like out there and this is what we think. Is that fair? Yes. I think it's kind of a matter of, there are different ways of judging membership, right? One way of judging membership is formal declarations of affiliation. Like in citizenship, you would ask, where's your, where's your citizenship from? You know, what uh -huh. country gave you your driver's license or your passport? In the sort of world of online communities in which the alt-right has sort of sprung up, the way you would better figure out who's a member of the community is by, you know, looking at their capacity to speak and communicate in the sort of codes of that community. So memes, right, like the now yeah. famous Pepe the Frog, code words like cultural Marxism, um, uh -huh. th those sorts of, of things I think are signs of membership in the alt-right. It's not... Like so many things, it's not some grand conspiracy where there's the hidden cabal of the alt-right. It's a community that a lot of people participate in based on what they say and do and believe about the world. Uh-huh. Okay. 
so specifically, what are the general views of the alt-right and women? In doing some background research, I, I came across something that wrote that regarding the men's rights movement, they generally feel like the the political parties, both Democrats and Republicans and, and everyone, any organized political party, are gynocentric. So they pander to the women's vote, they pander to women's interests, and they generally reject that. Is that accurate? So there's different ways in which the phrase or term gynocentric is used by online communities that are invested in misogyny and sexism and, and white supremacy. And so at one extreme of that is a very, in a way, simple argument that is used to make the claim that the both parties are gynocentric, which is that because there are more women than men in the United States, both political parties have to appeal to women more than they appeal to men. So that's a sort of interesting kind of argument about democracy that the right uh-huh. makes. There's another kind of cultural component to it as well, in which they often talk about Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and these other social media platforms as the la- kind of last, and, and Reddit and 4chan, the online forums, yeah, as, as the kind of last bastions of cultural resistance to gynocentrism. So even if the mass, you know, the mass media and the mass culture discussion of politics is all kind of filtered through this gynocentric worldview, such that there are still debates about the pay gap. Um, and that the government ought to involve itself in fighting against discrimination. Mike Pence's recent comments about being unwilling to, to dine or you know, get together with a woman that's not his wife. They read all of those kinds of controversies as examples of the ways in which the public sphere has been colonized by femininity. And so they defend very robustly the, what their understanding or interpretation of what free speech means in these forums online that they view as their, their, you know, little d democratic outlets in which they can sort of create a counterculture or an opposition to the broad culture that's been taken over by gynocentrism. Uh-huh. Okay. The alt-right has been fairly, um, well, there are aspects of that movement that have been very outspoken about the inferiority of races other than white race. Have they had that same position about the inferiority of women? It it doesn't really come out straightforwardly in their language as inferiority. Uh, I mean, of course, with the neo-Nazis as well, they often have all sorts of codes and, and tricks, you know, in which to make the argument that they're just expressing the existence of a difference that's not necessarily uh-huh. about inferiority or superiority. But yeah. in the case of women, what you, you'll see a lot of traditionalist discourses rooted in a Christian or you know, a sort of traditional understanding of the roles of men and women. Um, uh-huh. Men articulated to publicness, women you know, articulated to, to private, you know, the private sphere. And, and then the other part of it, too, though, is that this, the, the parts of the discourse that are less coded are the elements in the alt-right that are sort of connected in some ways to the community of what are called like pickup artists, right? These, these men who sort of 
think that to prove yourself a man, you have to become competent and capable at seducing a lot of women. Uh, uh-huh. and, and of course, that's a, a kind of discourse and a belief that's you know articulated very significantly to incidences of sexual assault and uh, date rape. And as a result, their, their take on it is, oh, we believe in equality. We believe in equality so much that ultimately one's capacity to persuade other people to be sexual partners right, is, is indicative of what the condition of equality means. Everyone is equally uh, positioned to be persuaded or not persuaded, you know, to be seduced or not, not seduced. And if you look at those clusters of discourse, they often position women as inferior by, you know, saying men are alphas, you know, they're big dogs, and they're the ones who kind of have to go do the hunting. So that, this Mike Cernovich guy, who was actually probably the, the, the person to whom the White House recently leaked the information about uh, Susan Rice's unmasked uh, yeah. of, NA, of uh, NSA names, um, he, he has a sort of central role in this community. And, and talks about his male essence and its power. And there's not a sense that feminine essence or femininity gets connected to that same kind of, I don't know if you'd call it sort of metaphysics or a spirituality uh-huh. about what it really means to be a human. Wow. You know, I've read about the pickup artists and I couldn't wrap my head around whether that was real, but I mean, it just seemed so bizarre but you're saying that this is a this is a real thing and it's a part of this movement can you go a little bit deeper on that sure so i'm i'm thinking about it in terms of this was a kind of thread that was in existence long before the alt-right was these kinds of communities uh-huh. of men that were together on on the basis of what they saw as their sort of social unwelcomeness or the way that society had stigmatized them uh-huh. How a lot of sort of lonely young men coded or understood right what they they saw to be their own romantic difficulties, and so the pickup artist community was a community that offered a resource for these men to get a self understanding that while society wouldn't respect them, they could if they fashioned and stylized themselves in certain kind of ways, force society to recognize them and their sexual virility and you see the sort of shift in the, the, the politicization of the alt-right in the last few years uh, as a part of this move in which news outlets like, for example, you know, Breitbart pick up this argument about how society stigmatizes, stigmatizes men and uses it as a, as a kind of recruiting tool to get people interested in, in their news and their the sort of constellation of figures that are part of this group. So if uh-huh. I felt somebody like Milo Yiannopoulos, for example, right? Yeah. He doesn't identify as a member of the pickup artist community or anything like that. But his essential arguments about the way that society has become too sensitive about how rape culture is real and about how men are no longer respected um, or viewed as equals in society are very much of a kind with these sorts of arguments that circulated within and around the pickup artist community about how society doesn't respect us. We're not part of rape culture. We're just interested in expressing our sexuality. Uh, uh-huh. So line goes. So they're really, they found this pain point or they're just really tapping into this deep insecurity in certain 
men or boys masculinity and they're just using that to attract them to this way of thinking or this movement or whatever you want to refer to it as I think that's right yes they're 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 picking up on the fragility of masculinity um, uh-huh and and the way in which masculinities purchase on privilege and power and authority, um, while still quite robust, is nevertheless threatened or understood to be threatened, and they they use that as a kind of energy source for recruitment and to uh-huh. sort of draw people in. Um, wow. So they, you know, facilitate people, you know, concern about people's status or um, position in society. Uh huh. So they kind of unfortunately see you know this is like a zero-sum game if women make make advances then that necessarily means that men will be giving up rights yes and they see that on the basis of you know for many of many of them sort of admit that there's this older model of feminism that was needed so somebody like robert stacy mccain christina hoff summers they both sort of admit feminism had a role to play when women didn't have the right to vote, for example, or when women <laughs> weren't allowed, really allowed to have many jobs, for example, uh-huh. they'll say, well, to a point, yes, feminism was a necessary corrective, you know, but this kind of parallels discourses about post-racialism that also animate the alt-right. We've now reached a point of equality in society such that any gains that are achieved by women, yes, I, I think you're absolutely right, should be understood as occurring in a zero-sum relationship with the gains that men have, right? Because uh-huh. we've achieved formal equality, the rest is sort of out there for people to, that's where people go compete and be themselves. Uh-huh, okay. So th- their belief would be that women have achieved equality then? Yes, and, and so, you know, discourses or arguments that point to gender inequity, right, represent a an improper politicization, right, of ordinary, everyday life. So... When confronted, for example, with evidence about the wage gap between the genders, right, they might not even necessarily, they might deny that there's a wage gap. That certainly is, is some, one thing that happens. Uh, and there are lots of debates on, on Reddit where, you know, people will go back and forth about this. But they might also just say, look, there, there might be a wage gap, but that might just be about different priorities, right? Some women uh-huh. choose to have children. And so, of course, they don't make as much money because they're taking more time off because they're, they're parenting. And, and so I don't want to say that they've only got one kind of response to these things, but they, they have different kinds of responses that go from denialism to kind of rationalization. Okay. Can we go back to Milo Yiannopoulos, um, who was a rising star in alt-right and at one point had sort of a peripheral involvement with the administration? He was, he was very much a, a lightning rod for the alt-right. And you mentioned him earlier with regard to gender roles and, and his denial of rape culture. So was he sort of an early figure or did he or was he more of an opportunist and this was a way to sort of jump on? Well, he his star, such as it was, started to rise during Gamergate. And, and so that that's sort of where his um, where he enters onto the scene. And then he takes a position at, at Breitbart and uses that as a position from which to 
attack a lot of different iterations of political correctness and focuses especially on issues that relate to younger folks and campus culture. He's an, he was an avatar, I think, for a lot of people who thought that, not even thought that liberal liberalism or that liberals were necessarily 100% wrong about everything, but that they were too serious, that they couldn't take a joke, that they'd gone too far in you know, worrying about problems like microaggressions, and that every, according to somebody like Milo, every human, if you conceive of every human interaction as a kind of drama about power between differentially and differentially situated individuals, then there's no space left for people to just be people or for people to express what they are. Uh -huh. And so part of why Milo rose was because for folks on the right, since he was very proudly declaring himself to be, a, to be gay uh, and proudly declaring himself to be a gay man who really loved to have sex with black men, then they could sort of latch onto Milo as an example of how the right was tolerant, right? Not uh, tolerant because uh -huh. this, this flamboyant gay fellow who loves black men Right, who's finally speaking truth to power about all these sorts of liberal liberal culture of sensitivity. Uh -huh. for, for folks who are maybe more centrist, um, but you know, you might say like alt-right curious. Um, Milo is interesting because he was sort of pointing, he could find examples of things that did seem as though they were a little extreme, like you know, certain kinds of complaints about cultural appropriation. Or he would take definitions of microaggressions or uh, political correctness out of context, sort of use them to polemicize. Uh -huh, okay. Yeah. Now, um, what has been the role of Breitbart in the rise of, of this alt-right movement? Well, Breitbart was the brainchild of Andrew Breitbart, who sort of made his hay more than uh, 20 years ago during the Lewinsky scandal in the, the Clinton administration. And he was this character who fashioned himself as a sort of rebellious outlaw who saw that, in his view, you know, the media took a take-no-prisoners approach to dealing with the political conservatism and so adopted right, that take-no-prisoners attitude uh, in the production of his own you know, media company. When he died a few years ago, Breitbart uh, was sort of taken over by some other folks and um, started to, to begin with, Breitbart was not doing what one would call noble journalism. But uh, yeah. you know, they've really, they moved into more incendiary and um, kind of problematic news reports in the last few years. Now, it, what's interesting is there has been this move in the media to portray Breitbart as some kind of all-powerful nexus of the political alt-right. But Breitbart's traffic and its you know, hits you know, have never substantiated the argument that it's a, at the center of this universe. It's, it's one part of the alt-right's world, and it's, it's this media arm that produces a lot of content that then gets replicated or, or, or you know, at a lot of other yeah. places. Also just, uh -huh. they also aggregate a lot of content too. So their role in this is mostly producing content or aggregating content that facilitates for other members, members of the alt-right community. Uh, you know, they can sort of circulate this as proof of their position. Yeah. Okay. How much overlap or maybe representation 
is there with the alt-right in the current administration and or the White House? It's a, um, a great question. Uh, and this is where you get more and more into that territory of people sort of denying that there is such a thing as the alt-right or that they're, they're members in it. So some folks, you know, like, for example, Steve Bannon, right, have sort of been cheerleaders for the alt-right and the way that they've organized their enterprises. And, for example, Breitbart refuses, refuses to police its comment section like other kinds of websites do. And uh-huh. then invites certain kinds of deliberators right onto its website. So Bannon is, is a person who certainly, you know, on the basis of his philosophy about the importance of sowing chaos, he certainly is a central figure there. And then you have this other gentleman uh, who knows Richard Spencer from college, uh, who's been involved in the, been involved in the Trump administration as uh, kind of a, a speechwriter. Um, and I'm forgetting his name at the moment, even though I swore I wrote it down. So maybe at the end of the interview, I can um, sure. give it back to you. And, and he, you know, he seems to be sitting in on these National Security Council meetings uh, and whatnot uh, uh-huh. and was part of the rollout of the administration's um, the, the original version of the immigrant ban. Or the, uh, the yeah. Ban. Oh, yeah. And then I think I already mentioned this Mike Cernovich, but, you know, he he seems like he's the conduit from for some of this information uh, about this NSA scandal, quote unquote, NSA scandal, right? That yeah. Susan Rice saw that there was a national security threat and asked for more information about yeah. it. But it seems like he's a person who's picking up information from somebody in, in Trump world about it. Well, and it also seems like there's a fair amount of leaking of strategic information that may be completely false to Breitbart and Breitbart reports it. And then the White House says, see, here's justification for what we're seeing. So it's, it's, you know, recycling false stories. Yes. There's a lot of that sort of, you know, tautological echo chamber. Uh, Yeah. Stuff that's happening. Okay. Well, to wrap up, what do you think women in this country whether they agree, you know, whatever party they are, whoever they agree with, whoever they voted for, do you think that there is a concern for women or for mothers or for fathers of daughters? Is there a concern about the rise of this, not just the alt-right, but this extreme thinking? Yes. I mean, let me, let me say that I think that it is an, it's an intersectional concern because this is a con- community that's mostly made up of white men who take a lot of pride in, in both being white and both being men. And so they have all sorts of techniques and ways to imagine that society is organized and pitted against them, whether or not it's because Black Lives Matter makes an argument about how this is a white supremacist country, and they feel threatened by that because they identify as Americans, and so their response is to imagine that Black Lives Matter are a bunch of you know, political terrorists. Or, you know, that somebody like Trump, who's apparently a sexual harasser and a rapist, could become the president. And their response to that is, you know, hey, can't, you know, don't you understand? Like, he, what he says isn't serious. He's just messing around. I think that the fact that that kind of attitude that takes moral seriousness uh, and sort of laughs at it, you know, dim- diminishes its significance. I mean, that that is a, that is a certainly a, a serious cause for worry because it indicates that people don't really think that there's a, a serious or significant moral component to what it means to be a person. 
which is different from, I don't want to say that I think that those arguments are very effective, right? They were obviously not very effective in the general election campaign. So political strategists can't really imagine that if they just really point out again that this seems very immoral, that that will work, you know, as a political argument. But for people who are, you know, organizing, living their lives, being with their families and thinking about what to do in the face of this. Yeah, I mean, they should be very concerned about it. One group of people seems very you know, unwilling to sort of admit that there are real human costs to the circulation of this ideology and this sort of belief that, you know, white men have it bad. Yeah, exactly. And sort of the normalization of that, the thinking that the, the white man is the, or white men are the real victims, uh, victim writ large of advances in our society and culture and economy. And also the normalization of the way that women have been treated and um, subject, uh, objectified and being fine for the leader of our country to speak about women the way that he has and applauded by the alt-right and by people who support this thinking. Yeah, it's the, the hostility to difference, which appears to exist because people feel threatened, but it's unclear how threatened, you know, how objective, it's not a very objectively significant threat. For example, I don't, trans bathrooms do not, you know, the fact that trans folks want to use the bathroom doesn't pose a threat to white men. Uh-huh. But, it has to be understood as such because they, they're so invested in this theory that everything is a, that's a gain for some other group is a loss for them. Um, yeah. Now, I, I think that is the most important thing to keep in mind about this is that that internalization that if someone else gains, that necessarily means that I have lost. Would you agree with that or not? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Uh That's the the basis of Trump's campaign, whether we're talking about China and trade or immigration, is when one side gets a thing, then the other side loses a thing. Uh Uh, And and immigrants come to America and they, they get stuff from America. So real Americans, quote unquote, lose out. China's economy grows. Our economy Uh must suffer. You know, women, I mean, in this case for Trump, it's probably very personal. It's like women get, you know, get the chance to prosecute and confront their rapist. It's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. lose. Yeah. Wow. So so one person's human rights or sense of humanity is is their feminazi or something. Is is there anything that I'm missing? Any big questions that I've missed? Well, I one thing that I would want to note is just. You know, the, a lot of these alt-right folks and the folks who represent them in the media, they're, they're very into a lot of academic literatures. So it's not that hard to find folks like Robert Stacey McCain who go back and read works like Mary Daly's Gynecology or uh, go back and uh, you know, read feminist manifestos from the 60s and the 70s or old Angela Davis speeches and kind of use them to prove that the, that the left's goal is the destruction of America. And so I think that there sometimes is a sense in the academic communities that I inhabit sometimes that these folks are very anti-intellectual and they're not rigorous and they're not philosophical. But they, they've gone back and read a lot of the Frankfurt School thinkers and feminist thinkers and race thinkers and they grouped them all into this heading of cultural Marxism. 
And so that's an interesting part of this too that I don't want to that I want to highlight is that it's just it's I think very interesting that they go back and they read this stuff and they pay attention to it. Okay, um, just to summarize, alt right isn't like an organization that you can register for and you get a card in the mail and you're oh, I'm a member. Um, it's more a, a set of shared beliefs. Is is that accurate? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. And that includes kind of a continuum from sort of ultra-conservative to neo-Nazi. Yes, or even, I don't think even ultra-conservative. I think there are a number of self-styled, probably libertarians or quasi-libertarians who would Uh probably fall under this category because they they would find government intervention to adjust discrimination uh, or, you know, to protect civil rights, to be offensive to their personhood. Uh Uh-huh. Excellent point. Well, I really thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us and help us understand this really very critical issue at just sort of what I would say is kind of a dark time in our history. And hopefully I will look back and think that I overplayed that, but it just feels like it right now. So I really appreciate you lending your expertise in this area that a lot of people sort of know about, but mainly don't. So I thank you very much for that. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on the show. It's been, it's been a great conversation uh, and I appreciate being a part of it. Great. Thanks so much for your important work. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. This episode's Woman in the Spotlight is Sarah Nyberg. Sarah is a writer and political activist who decided to engage with the alt-right using something out of their own playbook, a bot. Her bot, the Argutron, uses an algorithm to engage with Twitter trolls. As Nyberg pointed out, quote, so many arguments, especially on a place like Twitter, are almost content neutral. You can swap one argument out for another and the context is almost irrelevant. That's why Argutron's conversations look so much like arguments a real person might have with a persistent troll. For this ingenuity, Sarah Nyberg is our woman in the spotlight. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. Be sure to leave a review for us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. That will make it easier for others to find us as well. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can be sure you won't miss an episode. It will automatically show up in your podcast player. If you like a particular episode, it's super easy to share directly through Twitter or Facebook. A big thanks to Dr. Paul Johnson for speaking with me for today's episode and to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good. Tweet us at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode.